And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Jake Novak. And again, my Twitter feed is at JakeJakeNY, my Twitter handle, at JakeJakeNY. And the reason why I always mention that at the beginning of every program is because that is where you will find the links to so many of the books, articles, uh, other data that I talk about so that you can either fact check me, read more about it, that kind of thing. And of course, it's important to follow my feed as much as you can during the week because that's where you'll see all the citations and other things that I'm talking about, all the breaking news that you need to know from the US, Israel, and elsewhere. So again, at Jake, Jake NY. And I want to give you another heads up about something that's going to be happening on Tuesday, September 1st. So this coming Tuesday, September 1st at 12 noon Eastern time, I'm going to be doing a special live Periscope. I wouldn't even call it an interview. It's really just a one-on-one discussion with Adam Townsend. Adam Townsend is a super elite investor. He started a lot of companies, incredibly successful guy uh, from New York City. Um, but he has also lived in San Francisco, has done a lot of business, and spent a lot of time in India. And we are going to be talking about all things Israel from a financial, economic, a little bit of the politics as well, a little bit of the culture as well. Um, Adam has a tremendous amount of savvy investor followers and people who are really in the know, and Adam himself is in the know. And uh, he's going to ask me a lot of questions about Israel for that community of his, and I think I'd like to have uh, my audience tune in as well so you can learn about some of the things that people like Adam, you know, not a Jewish guy, not someone who does major business with Israel, but but probably would like to. Um, and of course, a lot of news coming out of that angle of the world. As you, as I talked about the last couple of weeks, the peace seal between Israel and the UAE, one of the reasons why I'm so optimistic about it is because unlike the peace seal between Israel and Egypt, which still worked out on its very basic level, um, this deal with Israel and the UAE definitely has an economic component to it that a lot of people know about, but a lot of people also don't know about. So we'll talk about that and a lot of other things. So Tuesday, September 1st, 12 noon, Please tune in. It'll be on my Twitter feed and also on Adam Townsend's Twitter feed. And his Twitter handle is Adam Scrabble, all one word. He has, he's also a Scrabble champion. So that's why he has that handle, Adam Scrab, Scrabble. Adam Scrabble is his Twitter handle. You'll find it live on both of our feeds, and uh, but mostly his, I think, for sure his. I'm not 100% sure if we can simulcast that way, but I'll be on it the entire time, and so will Adam. So that is tomorrow. If you're listening to this on a Monday, it is September 1st. Tuesday, September 1st is the day. Uh, 12 noon Eastern time that I'll be doing that live uh, interactive event talking all things Israel with Adam Townsend. Um, So my friends, can you feel it? Can you feel the wind shifting, the ground moving, whatever metaphor you want to use that's going on in the election right now? I hope you can. Because between the Republican National Convention, which really exceeded my expectations. I was expecting another glorified Zoom call, Zoom meeting of a convention like the Democrats had. And I was expecting the Republicans to fumble it because they don't seem to be able to do really good, very well-produced events anymore. (laughs) I don't know if they ever did. Um, And I was expecting it to not go well uh, from a technical standpoint and from a presentation standpoint. But it really exceeded my expectations. And that alone means something. I mean, look, folks, let's not pretend that we're not able to be swayed by good production values, no matter how smart we think we are or issue-oriented we are. Um, But between the convention and the exterior news around the country, the momentum for the Trump campaign and President Trump's reelection has never been stronger 
at least not since the COVID crisis began, at least, and maybe not even since the midterm elections. I mean, this is a very strong trend right now for President Trump and his reelection chances. Now, I'll be honest with you. At no time was I ever really convinced that Joe Biden was going to win this election. For the simple reason, and you've heard me say this before here on Novak Now, for the simple reason that no matter how unpopular an incumbent is, and there is a very strong anti-Trump movement out there, of course, all of us know it really well. You'd have to be living under a rock not to know that there are, there's a tremendous percentage of the country who are so anti-Trump to the point of major distraction in their lives, to the point that they really do seem like they need some counseling. So it's a strong, strong movement against Trump. But no matter how strong your movement is against a sitting incumbent president, you still need one or two things to be true about your candidate, about your, about your campaign, to win. And one of them is at least 10% of the voting public needs to be voting for your guy. That's the way it works in a presidential election with an incumbent. It may be for the dumbest reasons. It may be that you like the way that he smiled. It may be, because, and again, I'm using the male pronoun here because no woman has ever won the presidential election. Uh, hopefully that will change one day with a good candidate, not just because she's a woman. But the point is, uh, for now, I'm talking about history here, and history is only men winning. So, you know, it could be for a dumb reason. It could be because of a stupid slogan. It could be because of a stupid smile. For whatever reason... Uh, there's got to be some groundswell for your person. And I don't think John Kerry got that in 2004, for example. I don't think Mitt Romney got that in 2012, running against incumbents when they were running. Didn't have that 10% of the public. They had a strong anti-sitting president sentiment. Mitt Romney had, you know, Barack Obama's approval ratings were never really that good, not for any extended period of time. Mitt Romney had that good base to work with, but he was never able to get 10% of the overall voting public, which is about 12 million people, because we get about 120 million votes cast in this country in presidential elections. He was never able to get that many people saying, saying, I want this guy, even if he weren't running against Barack Obama. And I would say the same thing for, for John Kerry. I don't think John Kerry ever had that many people who were really interested in him personally. The, the, his, his, almost enti- his, his support was almost completely from people who just didn't want President Bush to get a second term. And I think we're seeing, and again, at no point did I see anything like that for Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden really didn't have that groundswell of support or any kind of thing going for him. So at no point did I really think he was going to win the election. But I wasn't so sure about how things would shake out with chicanery, voter fraud. I really just, you know, I wasn't ready to completely declare Donald Trump as the person who's definitely going to win the election. If you remember... In 2016, in May of 2016, I made that declaration about Donald Trump and wrote a very groundbreaking editorial about it for CNBC. I took a massive amount of heat for it. I was really the only member of the mainstream media who predicted the Trump victory and continued to do so, by the way, because I was not, I was not allowed just to write that one editorial and then just let it ride until November. Every time there was a bump in, a road, bump in the road or a perceived bump in the road for the Trump campaign, I was compelled either by my own volition or by my bosses to write another editorial explaining why I still thought Trump was going to win. So anyway, uh, I felt very confident early on in that election that Trump was going to win. And I really haven't felt that way until now because the ground really is shifting tremendously. Again, First, because of a very well-done Republican National Convention, which did a very good job of framing the issues, and most importantly, just looked like it was a product of a living, breathing campaign, 
Whereas the Democrat convention, really Democrats convention really seemed like it was one of those Zoom calls that we've all been suffering through ever since the COVID lockdown started. I mean, it was a really stark difference between one between one and the other. And then, then of course, we had yet another series of destructive riots, this time in Kenosha, Wisconsin, but they re emerged again in Minneapolis. And of course, Portland has had 90, 95 days or something in a row of violent rioting and looting or whatever, you know, whatever, what have you. And that got back into the news again as well. And the public really clearly seems to be blaming the Democrats for this, uh, as they should, as they should. Not that the Democrats have, are completely responsible, but if they have to blame one side or the other for this, the public is rightfully, I think, choosing the Democrats to blame because the Democrats for about, I don't know how many months, first pretended there weren't any riots. They kept insisting this was just peaceful protest. Remember the very famous video of Jerry Nadler, the congressman from Manhattan, being asked about the Portland rioting, and he insists it's a myth, and they have to show him video of it, and then he hems and haws anyway. Um, we know that members of the Biden campaign staff and, my, and, and Kamala Harris called for and actually bailed out some of these violent rioters. I mean, they, they raised money and donated money to bail out some of these violent rioters, even as they said they didn't exist. Then you had many of the Democrat mayors and governors refusing President Trump's public offers of help. You know, President can't just send in the National Guard if it isn't federal property. He was able to send in a few National Guard troops to protect the federal courthouse in Portland because that's federal property. But he wasn't able to do much else. Because they weren't invited, you know, federal troops had to be invited by the mayor and the governor, or probably just the governor, but certainly the mayor's vote helps as well. And we know that even they had consistently refused the help from President Trump. But as early as recently as Friday, or I guess late Thursday, as recently as late Thursday or early Friday, Mayor Ted Wheeler of Portland wrote not only did he refuse the help from President Trump, but he decided to publish on social media and, and go completely public with a mocking letter saying, hey, we don't need your help. Within 24 hours, there was a violent mob chaining itself to the lobby in his own building, which already seemed like that would be enough poetic justice. But then, of course, it got worse. The violence really picked up again in, Port in Portland, less than 48 hours after the mayor pretended uh, that they didn't need the help and, and mocked President Trump. And the governor of Oregon's done the same thing. There have been other governors and other Democrats in office who've done the same thing. Uh, folks, this attempt that the Democrats are doing right now to try to blame this violence on Donald Trump and his supporters is lame. Nobody's buying it. The polls are not going to show that it's working. And then, of course, we finally got a poll showing what I, what I was expecting to see during the convention and, and, and now even after the convention, which is from the, Demo the Democracy Institute, which is a pretty good polling outfit, um, they are both. They operate both here and in Great Britain, and it's important to say that because they were the only polling outfit that correctly predicted the Brexit vote. Remember, in 2016, in the summer, the people of the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union, and that was a surprise because most of the polls said that that wasn't going to happen. So they predicted that correctly, and then they also predicted the presidential election correctly, going to Donald Trump. They are the only polling institute that got them both right. That got them both right. Uh, I predicted both things were going to happen, but I'm not polling. I'm not a polling institution, and I'll talk about for a second why uh, that's not the be all and end all of everything. You should know. You know, you should talk about that as well because that's important. But anyway, um, the Democracy Institute came out with the poll released at, on Saturday night, Eastern Time, about 10 p.m., showing that President Trump now leads Joe Biden. I can't remember seeing any poll that showed Trump leading Biden nationally. 
But this one shows Trump leading Biden nationally 48 to 45 percent and leading in just about, I mean, leading in every battleground state, leading Biden, including a couple of battleground states that he didn't win, that Trump didn't win in 2016, including Minnesota, where the riots there clearly seem to have helped Trump get over the hump. He only lost to Hillary Clinton in 2016 by less than a, a 1.5 percentage point. So that, that, that state should have been in play anyway. And then also leading in New Hampshire, which if you ask me, I think Trump actually did win. I think there were a number of voters bust in from Vermont and Massachusetts who voted in New Hampshire as well. In fact, there was a lot of evidence of some suspicious traffic going between the two states that day. Um, so, but he's also leading in New Hampshire, according to this Democracy Institute poll. Now things can change. And this poll, just because they were right last time, doesn't mean it's the best poll in the world. And I don't expect to see a tremendous amount of other polls, at least immediately showing the same thing. But one of the points I want to make, folks, is we, you can't get too enamored of the numbers, even though that is the flavor of the moment. The Nate Silver, who, who's a pollster, or at least he's not really a pollster, he's someone who studies all the polls, who started the 538 group. Um, you know, he's been a golden boy for a long time. People are enamored of these numbers, folks, even though the, you know, even though the polls have kind of been off in a couple of instances, as we know. But a lot of people are really into this analytics thing. They think that it's, that's the way you can do, you know, really understand an election. And I want to remind people that elections are not about numbers. <laughs> elections are not about polls. They are about people and they are about emotions. And if you don't have an ability to feel the way the emotions are running in a country, feel the way people are feeling in a country, then it doesn't matter what your polls say because you probably are going to get it wrong. And the example that I like to point to is that if you are a really analytical type of person who studies the polls, then you're very likely going to be really obsessed with one particular state here in the United States, and that's Florida. Now, Florida is an important state. It's, got, it's worth a lot of electoral votes. In most of the elections in the past that we've seen, the winner of the overall election needs, you know, either needed Florida or Florida was the, a huge part of his victory. Um, the only recent election where somebody won Florida and didn't win the whole thing was 1992 when President George H.W. Bush didn't win a second term, but he did win Florida narrowly in 1992. Um, but it, these analytical types look at Florida for a lot of reasons, mostly because of all the electoral college votes it's worth. And they are really into Florida. They think Florida is the key. So they kind of make that into this big bellwether for the rest of the country. And when I see that, I have to laugh. Because from a point of view of mathematics and a point of view of analytics and data, which, by the way, I'm a big proponent of when it comes to playing sports games when, and, 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 and in investing and things like that, absolutely, follow the numbers and the analytics. That makes a lot of sense. But in elections, elections are an emotional thing. Voters are not computers. Even the most intelligent voter doesn't usually vote so much based on intellect. Voting is an emotional thing. It's something that you feel in your gut. That's the way people vote in every real society. That's how the way humans operate. It's not like other things. I think the biggest, I actually think the one thing that voting is very similar to is, is romance. Romance isn't an analytical thing or, da or data-driven thing necessarily. I mean, real romance. I'm not talking about arranged marriages or things like that. But, you know, it's an emotional thing, and sometimes it doesn't really make sense on, on paper. Hopefully, in a situation where we're talking about a romance, the, the man and the woman or the, the partners involved in a romantic relationship also make sense from a 
from just a from just a logical standpoint. Oh, they're about the same age. They come from similar backgrounds. You know, they won't have that kind of a clash if they live together. They both want the same things. That's when you know you're having an a, an adult relationship or an emotionally uh, mature relationship. Um, same thing with voting. You, you would hope that your gut reaction to a candidate also makes sense based on who you are and what your goals are. But that isn't true for a lot of people. And whereas Florida makes all the sense in the world from an analytical standpoint because of the number of electoral college votes it's, it's, it's worth and because uh, you, you, you know, it's, it's sometimes does, sometimes it does represent some kinds of flow in the country. The fact is, based on my experience as a human being and someone who's lived in all over this country, Florida does not represent the United States in such a big way. doesn't mean it isn't a hugely important state. It is. But if I were trying to craft a campaign that would emotionally capture the majority of the voters that would really make a difference in an election and that would really turn an election towards my candidate, the one state that I would focus on every time would be Ohio. Now, Ohio is worth a lot of electoral college votes. It's at least 20. I don't know if it's been rejiggered. So it's not like it's a small victory anyway. Ohio is a key state from that point of view, just from that numbers point of view. But it goes beyond the numbers. It's about what Ohio represents. Ohio is a really interesting state for so many reasons. And I'm going to tell you why it represents the whole country more than a Florida or more than any other place that you might think of. First off, Ohio is in the, you know, what people consider to be the Midwest. It's really very (laughs) closer. It's closer to the Northeast in a lot of ways, just from a geographic point of view. But Ohio has a similar type of flow through it than as Michigan and Wisconsin and some of the other states that, that neighbor it. Florida doesn't go the way Georgia and Alabama and some of the states that it borders all the time. Ohio is going to be more likely to be as a major, major cog in the rest of the, what we consider to be the Midwestern states. But more importantly than that, Ohio is a really compartmentalized state. For those of you who have lived there and traveled in Ohio, you know what I'm talking about. Every other region of the country is represented in some major part of Ohio. And it's, it's almost as if it's like a potpourri of the rest of the country. For the rest of the Midwest and that blue-collar mentality and that blue-collar economy and the blue-collar way of life, the Cleveland, Akron, Toledo, and even Youngstown part of Ohio really represents that part of the country. If you can win, Cle- you know, if you can win the, the, the mixed districts near or inside of Cleveland and Toledo and Akron and Youngstown, you'll probably win in places like Michigan and, and, and Western Pennsylvania and in Wisconsin, things like that. The South, the American South is very similar to Cincinnati. Cincinnati is on the Mississippi River. Cincinnati is on the border with Kentucky. Cincinnati is a lot like a Southern city. And for those of you who grew up there, you know what I'm talking about. It's got a real Southern feel to it in a, in a lot of ways. And it's a more conservative type town for the most part. Not the inner city, but, but the areas around Cincinnati. So Cincinnati represents a lot of the American South. For the American suburban upper middle class to middle class lifestyle, college graduate, white collar job part of the population, the city of Columbus, where Ohio State University is and a few other big uh, institutions, the city of Columbus really represents that part of the country really, really well. So if you can win Columbus and be popular in Columbus, you're probably doing well with suburban housewives, with middle to upper middle class college males, college educated males. 
And that's Columbus, and that's a big chunk of the state too. This country also has a lot of military families, people who are either still active service or have many different generations of their family who have served in the military. And for that part of the country, for that part of the population, which really comes a lot from the South as well, but there are other parts of the country that are highly represented in the military, the area of Dayton, where the major Air Force base is, Dayton really represents the military family, the military part of our population. And so if you do well in Dayton... That means you're probably doing well in some of the other parts of the country where there are a lot of military families. You're probably doing well in the South as well, but, you know, again, other, other parts of the country. Ohio has all of these things. And in fact, there used to be a lot of corporations and even Hollywood movie studios who used to know this, and they used to do a lot of testing in the Columbus area and other parts of Ohio for products and movies and things like that. Ohio is really a true microcosm of the country, as close to anything you can get in any one state. So even though it's worth a few, you know, fewer electoral college votes than Florida, not much, but a few, you know, a few less, it's still more than 20. And even though people don't think of it as this be-all and end-all state, it really is. <laughs> it really is. Ask John Kerry about that. Ohio was razor-thin close in 2004, and if John Kerry had won to Ohio, forget about his loss in Florida, he would have won the presidency. That's how, you know, that, that was just one election. Ohio has gone to every winner in a presidential election for more than a century, with only one exception, and that is 1960. Nixon won Ohio in 1960 and still lost the presidential election. But I'm going to give myself an asterisk on that one because, as you know, there are still some very hard questions about whether Nixon really lost the 1960 election. Uh, did Joe Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's father, steal it along with Mayor Daley for him in Illinois? And uh, you know, again, my point being, even if that election were on the up and up, Ohio was, was, <laughs> was still pretty much in play. Uh, that's not a bad record to have. There's one election that you want to get wrong for any kind of trend you're trying to prove for a state. 1960 isn't a bad one because that was just such a close election, the closest that you can imagine for an overall national popular vote and a few other things. So Ohio, Ohio, Ohio. And President Trump is, I think, going to win Ohio. (laughs) At least he is at this stage. Before the COVID crisis hit, I think he was very comfortably ahead in Ohio. Uh, I think that, like almost a lot of places, I think President Trump probably took a hit from the economic lockdown and, and things like that. Whether it's his fault or not, that's another discussion to have another time. I think he took a hit there, but I think Ohio has now fallen much more strongly in his camp. And I just, just like I can't see somebody winning a presidential election when they don't have at least 10% of the population voting for them, just for them, not thinking about the other guy not thinking about voting against the other guy. And that's certainly the case with Biden. Just like I can't see somebody like that winning a presidential election, I just, I'm not really ready to even conceive of someone losing a presidential election when they can win Ohio. Because if they've won Ohio, that tells me they're probably going to win some other states that have heavy military aspects in them because they've won, they probably won Dayton. Or, they're gonna, or they just, they've done a good job of just winning over that microcosm of the entire population that Ohio truly is. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things where Ohio is such a great test market for you as a national candidate. And the chances of you losing Ohio and still winning the whole thing or winning Ohio and still losing the whole thing are just low. And I got to feel that President Trump, because of a couple of, of factors, is starting to win over 
those on-the-fence type people to not only maybe make their decision, but more importantly, show up to vote. This Democracy Institute poll, not only does it show Trump ahead nationally and Trump ahead in all these battleground states, but it also shows that the enthusiasm gap is off the charts. President Trump has something like 82% of his voters are really excited about voting for him and showing up at the polls to vote for him. And only 40% of the people who say they're going to vote for Joe Biden feel that way. That is a massive gap. We didn't see anything like that in 2016. Okay? So the enthusiasm for Trump, I think, has been raised because of the success of the Republican National Convention and because of the outrage growing about the continuing violence in our cities and states run by Democrats. You know, I don't know if President Trump's going to win in Oregon, but there are going to be people in other states like Ohio and like Florida who are watching on television what's going on in Portland and going on in Seattle and going on in Baltimore and going on in Chicago and all these places. And they're going to think, I can't vote for a Democrat. I can't, I, you know, I got to stand up now. I got to make sure I vote this time. And they're going to be just angered enough and just fired up enough to go vote. Now we're 60, you know, we're more than 60 days away from election day and things can change. Things can change, but you're getting into that point now. Once you start moving towards Labor Day weekend, the chances of things really, really changing significantly are start to really get narrow. It starts to get tough. And it just feels like right now we're seeing something we're seeing a real shift in things. Now, I think there are two elections that this election right now is starting to mirror as far as how their trajectory is going. Now, if you're really, really optimistic for the Trump camp, this could be like a 1988. If you remember in 1998, Michael Dukakis, a Democratic nominee, came in and out of that convention, his convention in July, with a 17 17 percentage point lead over George H.W. Bush who was vice president at the time. By Labor Day, it was completely even in the polls. And then by Election Day, George H.W. Bush had won by a pretty big landslide. Not as big as Reagan's landslide in 84 or 1980, but pretty close. He had won more than 400 electoral votes. I think he got 54%, a little bit more than that, of the, of the popular vote and beat Dukakis by eight or nine points in the popular vote, which is like you know, a big, big chunk these days. He did really well. <laughs> He did really well, and that it feels like that could be a scenario here in this election. I don't think he's going to. I don't think Donald Trump's going to win four hundred plus electoral college votes, and I don't think he's going to win fifty four, fifty five percent of the popular vote under any circumstances. But by twenty twenty standards, where we have such a more polarized country than we did in nineteen eighty eight, this could be similar, where Joe Biden has all the polls showing him really pretty strong going into his convention, and then. Once the conventions are over, he just starts to spiral. He just goes into this tailspin. And it's a steady kind of number like that. So the, and, and I think that could lead to President Trump winning maybe 320 electoral college votes as opposed to 306 last time. That kind of thing. Um, it could also end up being more like the 2004 election with John Kerry and George Bush where President Trump wins just a little bit more by a slightly bigger margin than he did last time. And the convention was the last chance for Kerry to really close the deal with people, and he didn't do it. And so he never caught up. Uh, he never really caught up and made, you know, made up for the gap that he was already in when, when, he, when, the, summer, when the middle of the summer hit. So we, we are looking at those two scenarios. And the last thing I want to say is, you know, we've lived through a lot of empty campaign slogans. And I would even say that Make America Great Again 
is not exactly as specific. It's not a specific slogan, even though we know it was effective. The, the, the slogan that the Trump campaign has now, it's three words. I've never seen anything that could be so as effective as this because it actually does sum up something more specific, and that is the slogan of jobs, not mobs. I mean, this could actually be the greatest short campaign slogan in history because it actually means something right now. Anyway, we'll see, but I do feel like the ground has shifted, and I think you feel it too. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nakam Siegel Network. You can again follow me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY and catch me tomorrow at Tuesday at noon on Twitter for a live Periscope. Speak to you again.